they don't do this for me at First Church. I have to carry my own stand at First Church to the pulpit, so thank you. Well, I, I enjoy the Burlington Baptist music makers, don't you? Amen, amen, amen. Well, good morning, Burlington Baptist. I appreciate being here, and uh, if you're a guest, I met some guests before the service. If you're a guest, uh, we're glad to have you at Burlington Baptist, and if you come expecting Kent, uh, he's not here. Uh, he's been living the dream, uh, riding that Harley all the way to Seattle and turn around and coming back. Anybody heard from him? I hadn't heard from him this week. Is he? Where is he? He's supposed to be back today. He won't be worth shooting next week. You might as well give him another week off. Might as well just give him another week off, you know. So, so I love your pastor. Uh, I, I, I like real people. The man, he's real. He's transparent. He's genuine. And uh, I, love, I love being with him. As I told you last week, uh, he and Jim Willem and I have lunch together on a regular basis. And we were graced with the presence of the, the Baptist bishop at the first service. Jim Willem, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. And so, he was on his way to preach at Bellevue, and he stopped, off, he stopped off here. So you're wondering who I am if you're a guest. I'm L.D. Campbell. I'm the pastor emeritus at First Church just down the road. And I have the privilege of filling in for Kent every now and then. And uh, I'm always honored, and I'm honored to be your preacher today. Joyce and I love coming here. Joyce is back there. Raise your hand, Joyce, back there. Right there she is. Joyce and I love coming here, uh, and we feel so welcome. And uh, we feel at home here because we, we know so many, many of you. And uh, we appreciate our relationship with the Burlington Baptist uh, family. My sermon this morning has a strange title, you may think, Finding God in God. Our pastor is in a series at First Church on, he calls it God in Plain Sight. And he asked me to do one on reverence. And I thought, well, that will be a piece of cake. No, 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 no. I discovered very little has been done on reverence. Worship, but not reverence. And uh, preparing this message was like digging gold out of some mountain, deep in some mountain. And uh, I don't know when I have worked harder on, on a sermon. And uh, 55 years, you would have thought I would have done something on reverence, but I did not. So let's pray that the Lord will bless it. Now, Father, pour through me the gift of preaching. Take these human words and use them to speak to us today. Give each of us just the message you want us to hear, because we pray this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. When I say the word God, what comes to your mind? When you see the word God or hear the word God, what comes to your mind? A.W. Tozer, in his great book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says this. He says, the most preposterous fact about any man is not what he is at a given time or may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So when I say God, what comes to your mind? Now, because we have a low concept of God, we are not finding God in God. 
We have become all too informal with God nowadays. Our relationship with God is far too casual. And in our modern mind, God has almost become a human. And today God is so buddy-buddy that we do not understand his holiness. But he is still the Lord God Almighty. So this morning, how do we find God in God? Let's start with this. We find God in God by finding God in reverence. By finding God in reverence. Because reverence puts God in his rightful place. Reverence puts God in his rightful place. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, reverence and awe there are strong words. It means that we approach God in, in every way, knowing that God is far vast than any of us. He is the supreme being of all the universe. And it means then that we approach him with our human understanding, our human limitations. Now, reverence for God should affect how we think and how we act, knowing that we are always in his presence, but that's not necessarily so. David McKay says it best. He says, reverence is profound respect mingled with love. Isn't that good? Reverence is profound respect mingled with love. It is a complex emotion made up of mingled feelings of the soul. Reverence embraces regard, deference, honor, and esteem. Reverence is the fundamental virtue in religion. Now that you know what reverence is, would you agree with me that reverence and awe are a virtue that is vastly missing in our culture today? Reverence is, is missing. It's a missing quality among all of us. I believe, I really believe, that we can live days and weeks without reverence and awe to God, to his creation, or even to one another. I believe that we can rush through our days without this overwhelming sense of reverence and awe. And we don't see the glory that's around us, the glory that points us to the glory of God. Folks, we have some of the most beautiful sunsets over Burlington, Kentucky. I can stand at our kitchen window and I can look at the western sky sometimes and it's ablaze with the glory of God. You see, that glory helps to point us to the glory of God. But I'm afraid we don't see it because we have busy schedules and dirty dishes and bills to be paid and fighting children and the mean neighbor and the hard boss and the traffic and the laundry that keeps piling up and the car that needs to be repaired and the movie we need to see and the Facebook that we certainly cannot do without and that cool restaurant that we can't wait to visit and that vacation just around the corner and some of you are chomping at the bits, you know, just to get out of here for a vacation. The relative who is mad again not going to the final four because Washington could not make free throws but 
I'm getting over it. I'm getting over it. The weight that we not, did not mean to gain, the book that we haven't read, and the dreams that are slipping through our fingers. So we just rush through dealing with all of that rather than dealing with reverence and awe to God. So folks, we need to understand we live our lives in the shadow of reverence and awe. Every word that we speak, every action that we make, every decision that we entertain was meant to be colored with reverence and awe. So reverence puts God in his rightful place. But reverence also, folks, puts us in our place. Reverence puts us in our place. Paul Woodruff has written the classic book on reverence. It's not a Christian book at all, but, but uh, uh, it's sort of become a classic on reverence. It's called Reverence Renewing a Forgotten Virtue. He says this, reverence is a deep, convicted understanding of our human limitations. Hmm. See, folks, reverence can only take hold of us when we understand our place in the scheme of things. Woodruff goes on to say, from this, from reverence, grows the capacity to be aware of everything outside our control, God, truth, justice, nature, even death. Reverence puts us in our place. On those lonely nights when David was out there in the, in the fields with those little woolies keeping watch over them, and he would lay there and he would look at God's vast, vast creation, the stars and the moon and the handiwork, God's handiwork, and he said this. He just understood how insignificant he was. He said, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Reverence puts us in our place. Barbara Brown Taylor is not only one of the great authors of our time, she is also one of the best preachers of our time, Baylor University put her in a classification as one of the top 10 preachers in this country, and she writes wonderful stuff. She's written a book called Altar in the World, and if you want something to read this summer, I would recommend it. Barbara Brown Taylor, Altar in the World, and this is what she says. I learned reverence from my father. I think it may have had something to do with his having been a soldier. Since exercise of reverence generally includes knowing your rank in the overall scheme of things. <laughs> Never soldier in this building knows what I'm talking about. Reverence puts God in his place. Reverence is a deep, convicted understanding of our human limitations. Reverence is fully knowing that we are God's creatures, and we exist only because of his great generosity and his love as our creator. What is, what is man that you're mindful of him, David said. So reverence means we find God in reverence. Reverence puts God in his rightful place, and then reverence puts us in our place. But then finding God in God means that we find God in fear. Find God in, and you're thinking, okay, here he goes. He's going to scare the you-know-what out of us like the old-time preachers used to do. Yes, I am. <laughs> but in a different way, in a different way. Exodus, the third chapter. One day Moses was tending the flock of his father Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. 
And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of the bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't the bush burning up? I must go and see it. And when the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the Lord God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. I discovered that the Hebrew word for afraid there is a very strong word. It means to fear, to dread, to be terrified due to inferiority, awe, and respect, and reverence. Strong, strong word here. Now, every now and then, <laughs> I get asked, why aren't you preachers preaching more about the fear of God and the dangers of going to hell? Why aren't you preaching more about the anger of God and hell fire? You preachers have gone too soft on sin and over generous in preaching about God's love and grace. Now, the belief <laughs> is that more people would come to the church and obey the commandments if we preach the raw truth about God's wrath and the dangers of going to hell and the dangers of hell fire. Well, now, what's valid about that kind of thinking is that that kind of preaching about the wrath of God and hellfire is, is somewhat effective. Now, I, in the mountains of East Tennessee, I think that's all our preachers knew about. I grew up with that kind of preaching. And I would sit beside my grandmother and the preacher would be up there running and raving about going to hell and the dangers of hellfire and God was just going to send us all to hell and I would be so scared. I would get the closest my grandmother I could without being on her lap. And I would sit there thinking, I don't want to go to hell. 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 And at night I would lay in my bed thinking, I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to go to hell. And when I became a teenager and I started seeing girls differently, I knew I was going to hell. <laughs> Can I get a witness? No grace, no mercy, just hellfire and damnation. And I admit it had to have an effect on my behavior. It scared me enough to keep me from straying too far morally and spiritually. But folks, on the negative side, that kind of preaching left me a spiritual and emotional cripple when it came to my relationship with God. And it took me years and years to understand that God is a God of grace, He is a God of love, He is a God of mercy, He, is a, he does not want to send me to hell, He wants to save me by His grace. I can even call Him Father. It took me years to come to that. Anybody here can relate to that? See, the fear of God should only be preached in the context of God's grace. 
Now, I, I know that Scripture gives us somewhat a mixed message here. Proverbs 10.9 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But the fear there is not to be understood as punishment. It, it, is, it is, as McKay says, it is profound reverence mingled with love. It's not the kind of fear of being sent to the principal's office. Now, you students all over this building this morning, you have no idea the terror that being sent to the principal's office caused those of my generation and maybe your parents' generation. We did not go to the principal's office to receive positive affirmation <laughs> or to get a sucker <laughs> or a star or to be told how wonderful we were. We went to the principal's office for punishment, a paddling. Now, I know it surprises you. It will really surprise you. I had more than my share of going to the principal's office. I wasn't a rebel. I was not a rebel. It was just that, <laughs> that my behavior didn't always fall in line with the requirements of the school. <laughs> and I knew when I went to Mr. Harden's office, I was going for one thing, punishment, a paddling. You say, well, then, L.D., how in the world is the fear of God the beginning of wisdom? Well, I'm glad you asked that, and I'll be glad to answer it. In our relationship with God, as in our relationship with others, there is a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear. Are you with me? When we love someone, our love for them will contain a number of healthy fears. We will fear being disrespectful, fear of being selfish, fear of disappointing them, fear of hurting them, fear of defending, uh, defending them, offending them. So reverence and awe and respect are a form of fear. But that is not to be confused with the fear of being intimidated or dreading someone because you're going to get punished. Metaphorically, metaphorically, the love's fear is the fear that God challenged Moses with. Take your sandals off, Moses, because you're standing on holy ground. Now, when we are wise and are on the right path and stand before the majesty and the mystery of God and the love of God, metaphorically with our shoes off, metaphorically with our shoes off, namely in reverence, in awe, in respect, unknowing, without undue pride, humble before an infinity that dwarfs us, and then open to the majesty and the mystery of God so that God can change us and use us for his eternal purposes. But I want to tell you that's a far different fear that we experience when we're frightened of someone or something that threatens us because that person is perceived as being merciless or exacting or arbitrary are punitive. And when you understand grace, you understand that every truth in our Christian faith invites us to come toward God and intimacy and love 
in a profound reverence mingled in love. You don't enter a love relationship because you're afraid or threatened. You enter into a love relationship because you are drawn there by love. Two men had the most profound influence on my life. This is my high school coach, Walter Buck Van Hus. You see his record, 1,021 wins and 313 losses. The day he died, he liked six games being the winningest high school coach in the nation. Just six games. He was in surgery that day, and I kept praying, Lord, just patch him up one more time. Let him win the six games, and then you can have him. But he died in surgery. Had a profound influence on my life. Under him, we won the high school, we won the high school basketball tournament, and in those days, you know, they threw you in with everybody. We didn't have a man on our team that was six foot tall. We lied and said our center did. He wasn't. He was only six foot eleven, five foot eleven. We had a guard that was five seven and one five nine. That year we played forty-four games. Can you imagine? Forty-four games, and we won forty. And then we won the state championship. But here's the interesting thing. <laughs> Thirteen of us off a coach's team became pastors. Thirteen of us. Coach thought he was coaching a basketball team. He was really running a seminary. <laughs> Thirteen of us became pastors. There were three of us buried him. We buried him on Wednesday. Then on Friday, he was scheduled to be inducted into the high school's basketball national hall of fame in Oklahoma. And two of his coach friends went out to the banquet and got his honors. He was a marvelous brain when it came to base basketball, but he was a better man. This next fellow is Dr. Floyd Clark, who was the dean of Johnson Bible College for 35 years. When I went to Johnson Bible College, Dr. Clark saw something in me that nobody else did because there were people there that thought I didn't belong there, and they told me. The night I graduated, one of them came over and sat down beside where I was eating supper and said, well, L.D., when you came here four years ago, I didn't think you belonged. Now you're graduating. I thought, well, thank you for the love. <laughs> thank you for the encouragement. I really appreciate that. <laughs> a few years later, <laughs> a few years later, I was asked to serve as a trustee. I voted on that person's salary. And I enjoyed the moment. <laughs> but Dr. Clark saw something in me that nobody else did. In my freshman year, my second semester, he asked me to be his youth minister at the Meadowbrook Christian Church. And I thought, gosh, I'm not quite, I don't know anything about being youth minister. Youth ministers are supposed to be, have a lot of hair and play the guitar and, and be pretty. And I, I didn't have any of that. But he asked me to be his youth minister. He gave me my first opportunities to preach. He bought me my first car. He paid off my school bill at the end of my freshman year so that I could go into my sophomore year with a clean slate. He conducted my ordination service, and he performed Joyce and I's wedding. He was a marvelous man, a wonderful man, 
and he was like a father to me. But I want to tell you the principles that I learned from those two men. I put to, to use every day in my ministry. Every day when I hit the floor, what I learned from, from Coach Van Us and Dr. Clark, I put into practice. Character, integrity, have a strong work ethic and work hard. Live a consistent, disciplined life. Be committed to what you are about. Be responsible. Lead by example. Read your eyes out. <laughs> and be faithful to your wife and keep your word. They were two of the most demanding men that you would ever meet. They expected a level of excellence from me, and they would settle for nothing less than my best. And I want to tell you, they challenged me in ways that scared me to death. You talk about stretching. I had more responsibility in high school than most adults do today. Now, did I fear them? You bet I did, yes. But it was a healthy fear. It was not to be confused with being frightened or intimidated or dreading being in their presence. It, it was a reverence, it was a reverence mingled with love. I, I was absolutely humbled that these two great men would choose to invest in me. They could invest it in all kinds of boys, but they chose to invest in me. And I did my best to live up to what they expected of me. And it was a warm, personal relationship. I did not dread being in their presence. I cherished the time I was in their presence. I cherished the time I got to spend with them and wish I could have spent more. <laughs> now, do you think I ever had that kind of warm, intimate relationship with my principal, Mr. Harden? No, 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 not by the hair of my chinny-chin-chin. I was literally scared to death to be in his presence because I knew when I was in his presence, I was going to be punished. I could pass him in the hall and my palms would sweat. I was scared to death of him. Do you see now the difference between a healthy fear and an unhealthy fear? Do you see the difference? Now I don't go out of here saying, well, the old he doesn't believe in preaching in hell anymore. <clears throat> I am saying <clears throat> that it does God injustice when we preach about hellfire and damnation without saying the God we Christians believe in is ultimate in understanding, in compassion, in forgiveness, and in goodness. Our God is a good God. Look at the screen. Read these with me. I only picked four verses. I could have piled a whole lot of verses. Read them out loud with me. You are good, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. All right, read it out loud with me. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. <clears throat> his love endures forever. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. How abundant are the good things that you have stored up for those who fear you. That's a good fear. That's a good fear. That you bestow in the sight of all on those that take refuge in you. Our God is a good God. 
And those verses cut to the heart of the issue. God is good. God is good in his righteousness. He's good in his power. He's good in his grace. He's good in his faithfulness. He's good in his mercy. He's good in his holiness. He's good in his justice. He is good in his rule. His words are good and true. His actions are good and true. When he is angry, he is good. When he preserves life, he is good. When he takes life, he is good. When his words are hard, they are good. His promises are good. His provisions are good. God is good. Amen, LD. That's good preaching. Look at the screen. God is good. All the time. God is good. All the time. Amen. But now without reverence, we would never see that God is good. Reverence puts God in plain sight. All right, now let's do a little review. Whew, I've had some heavy stuff here. So wiggle around in your chair. Take a deep breath. This has not been exactly a touchy, feel-good sermon. Have you noticed? You say, well, could we go get a cup of coffee and have a little break? This, this has been heavy stuff. It has been, but let's do a little review. Let's do a little review. Are you with me? How do we find God in God? By finding God in reverence. Because reverence puts God in his rightful place. And reverence puts us in our place. And then by finding God in fear. A reverence that is mingled with love. But now most of all, we find God in God by finding God in Jesus. Amen. I come to you this morning with the conviction that Jesus knows more about God than anybody. And if you want to learn the truth about God, just listen to Jesus. What did Jesus say? He said, if you knew me, you would know my Father. And anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, down through the ages, people have actually longed to see God <laughs> or to capture God's essence. And we have built marvelous temples and marvelous majestic cathedrals and when you step into those wonderful spaces, you are reminded of the majesty and the awesomeness of God. And I love to worship in those kind of places at times. People have made paintings. We've written music. We've even, they've even carved idols trying to find out what God looks like. A little girl stayed after her class was dismissed, her art class was dismissed, and uh, her teacher went back to her and she said, well, honey, it's, it's time to go. And she said, well, I can't go till I finish my drawing. What are you drawing? I'm drawing a picture of God. Well, honey, no one knows what God looks like. They will when I'm finished. <laughs> but we are no longer left to our imagination Wondering in educated ignorance what God looks like, we know for sure. John said it this way, no one has ever seen God, no. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has, what's the word, revealed him. See, God chose to make himself visible 
in a way that we could understand as a man, as a man. And that visibility is not only compelling and clear, it is glorious. So if you want to know what God looks like, just look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. The Apostle Paul said the same thing. He said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So why then? Why then would God choose to make himself visible to us in the form of Jesus? Look at, look, look at, the, look at the screen. Jesus said this. He entered it. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Yeah. John 3.16 was the first verse that my grandmother had me to commit to memory. And we say John 3.16, but we forget verse 17, and we shouldn't. Look at the screen. Let's read it out loud together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. J.I. Packer has written the classic work on God. It's called Knowing God, and uh, it is a marvelous work. I would recommend it to you, but don't you just read one chapter at a time. Don't, don't try to rush through it. He says this, we do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us, <laughs> bringing us to know him by making his love known to us. Yeah. We do not make friends with God. God makes friends with us. In the Oscar-winning movie, The King's Speech, it won four Oscars. It dramatically portrays England's Duke of York, who was to become King George VI, and his battle with a debilitating speech impediment. When he would make speeches, of course, for his, sometimes he had to stand in for his father, the king, and make a speech, and it was absolutely awful. He struggled so much, and in, it, it embarrassed him, and, and it made those that listened to him so uncomfortable. The duke's wife heard about a speech therapist from Australia by the name of Lionel Logan. And she went to him to see if he could help the Duke speak without stammering. She made an appointment, and the Duke went for the first appointment. And in the first appointment, Lionel <laughs> refused to call the Duke your royal highness. He called him Bertie. And it insulted the Duke because only his immediate family called him Bertie. But he said, I will call you Bertie, and you will not call me Mr. Logan. You, 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 will, Mr. Logan, you will call me Lionel. In here, it's Bertie and Lionel. We're on equal standing in these sessions. Well, the therapy was terribly frustrating for the Duke. As a matter of fact, at times it would just infuriate him because it was so difficult. And at times he would just lash out at the therapist because he struggled so hard with the therapy. And one time it was so difficult for him and he was having such a problem with it that he just got angry and walked out. But he came back. But all during the therapy, their relationship was filled with tension and conflict. 
but the Duke kept at it. And if you know your history, you know that the Duke is thrown into being the king. He never thought he would be the king, didn't want to be the king. But his brother, King Edward, abdicated the throne so he could marry an American divorcee, Wallace Simpson. And here, the Duke of York now becomes king, and he absolutely did not want to be the king. He takes the name of King George VI to honor his father. And he knows now that he's the king. He needs Lionel more than ever. When it was evident that England and Germany were going to war with each other, King George VI had to make a speech to his country and to his kingdom and to the world telling them that England and Germany were at war. It was a make-or-break speech for the king. He had to deliver it. He had to make a speech that would rally his kingdom around him and the war effort against Germany. And he knows it's a make-or-break speech. I've got to deliver. The king is absolutely terrified. He sends for Lionel. And in the studio, the Rady studio, as the king makes his speech to the world, but as he makes it to rally his kingdom behind him in the war effort, Lionel is there coaching the king during the speech and coaching him during the speech. And the king nailed it. It was a magnificent speech that rallied, first of all, his government around him and his people. It was magnificent. And there's a picture of him making the speech. After this speech, there is a touching scene in the movie where the king shakes hands with his therapist and says, thank you, my friend. To which the therapist says, thank you, your majesty. Hmm. King George VI called his therapist his friend. And his therapist called him majesty. Now here is the sermon in that scene. We have got to get the balance right between majesty and friend. We come to God in all of his majesty. Not as equals. But as undeserving sinners. And God chooses to call us friends. He's God, we're not. And yet, God calls us friend. And we call him majesty. Majesty. Father, you are the king of the universe. You're the Lord God Almighty. And yet you call us friends. Help us to always revere you, respect you with a reverence that is mingled with great love for you, 
and to stand in awe of you in worship, love, and praise. And never forget